Lord, we thank you so much for just the great opportunity to study your word and to look at the cross this morning, to look at the crucifixion of Christ. We pray that you would fill us with your spirit as we look at this most important topic. Really, everything has been leading up to this lesson, as it were. And so we just pray, Father, that you would be with us and open our eyes. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. I sent out an email to you guys basically asking this question, who killed Jesus? And we're going to ask a follow-up question and why. Who killed Jesus and why? What really happened at the cross? Was the death of Jesus just a human tragedy where a good man was brutally and unfairly slain? There's a sense in which you could look at that as here's a good man that was just, you know, he got a bad rap. Um, was his death an example of faith, obedience, and self-sacrifice? <clears throat> Do we just look at Jesus as like somebody who just kind of died, kind of like a soldier dies on the field of battle to help protect freedom? Is that the way we should view the cross? Um, was it a ransom paid to the devil, kind of like we see in kind of that allegory with C.S. Lewis is was there some payment that was being exacted by Satan and so the father gave up his son Jesus to pay this payment to Satan in order for us Edmund is it Edmund to go free is that his name in language in the word word okay um, uh, is it a manifestation of moral influence is Jesus trying to set a good example so that people will be follow his good example. These are all theories that people have had um, over the years of <clears throat> theories of what happened at the cross. Um, or was the cross, as we've heard the term, an atonement? Did it have anything to do with propitiation, wrath-bearing, or expiation, setting aside of sin? Was it a supernatural act done to satisfy the wrath and justice of God? And if so, the cross really is unique. Um, when, we, when we think about who killed Jesus and why it happened, there's a lot of analogies that we'll use outside of the Bible that sometimes can have emotional value and maybe explain some aspect of the cross. But where it seems like they all fall short is the cross involves a triune relationship before the world began. You have particularly in scripture this agreement that seems to have been made between the father and the son. And on behalf of uh, all of humanity in one sense, a portion of humanity in another sense. And so the cross really seems to defy human analogy at the end of the day. Um, let's look at a couple passages before we get into our main passages, just trying to answer this question, who killed Jesus? There's a couple passages in scripture that seem to go after that issue. Um, in Acts 4, we really have a prayer of the early church. In the middle of this early church prayer, there is some description of who's responsible for the death and crucifixion of Christ. They pray for truly against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. So this prayer is being directed to the father, both Herod. This is one guy that's responsible for what happened, right? Leader of the Jews. Pontius Pilate. We'll be talking about him later. This is another guy that's responsible for killing Jesus with the Gentiles. So we have Roman soldiers and all kinds of other people that are involved. And the people of Israel. So now we've got four, at least individual slash groups that are all being held responsible. We're gathered together to, what would you expect would come be the next phrase? That's what you and I would say because we know the Bible. But when, you're, when you read the flow of thought here, if you didn't know anything about scripture and you're seeing Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, and Israel are all gathered together to kill Jesus and do this terribly unjust tragedy in history, right? That's, that's where I would probably lean if I didn't know the rest of this verse. But what happens? 
to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. This is the Bible just does this all over the place right in the middle of this prayer where it's like we're driving a car down a road of human responsibility. And all of a sudden the Bible just goes, God's sovereignty and doesn't even bother to explain how they can both be true at the same time. If you, if you read the rest of the context, there is not even a hint that there should be any question about this verse. There's no explanation given, but as, especially in Western Christian thought, we read a verse like this and we're like, hold on. You're saying Herod, Pontius Pilate, the Gentiles, Israel are all responsible for doing something that was predetermined beforehand by Almighty God? And the answer is yes. And there's no explanation offered. And so here, if we were to ask, ask the question, who killed Jesus? We could say Herod did. We could say Pontius Pilate did. The Greek, the Gentiles did. Israel did. God did. Just from this one verse. Um, what about in two, uh, chapter 2 of the same book? Peter... Uh, on the day of Pentecost, he gets up and he begins to preach. And here's part of his sermon. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles. We've spent a lot of time studying Jesus's miracles, wonders and signs, which God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, everybody has seen. Nobody debated this information this is all stuff that was seen him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of god so now we've got this front loaded right early in this verse or these two verses he's being delivered that means delivered up under crucifixion by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of god so this is something that god had planned out beforehand just like we saw in acts 4 and then what would you expect in this verse? I'd expect for him to go and, and suffer this wonderful atonement on behalf of sinners to redeem all mankind. That would be congruent, right? What comes next? You have taken by lawless hands. What does lawless mean? Sin, right? Sin is lawlessness. You have taken by lawless hands. You have sinned and have crucified and put to death Jesus Christ. Um, so think about that. Let me get back here. Um, so God had predetermined this to occur, but the audience that Peter is speaking to is a Jewish audience. He says, you have sinned in putting him on the cross. So in this verse, we see that God is responsible for the death of Christ, but also all of the Jews that are being preached to by Peter are responsible for crucifying Christ and putting him to death. And it was both lawless and predetermined. How do we explain that? I don't know that we really can. We can we see analogies of it in the Old Testament, like with Joseph. Remember, Joseph was thrown into the pit by his brothers, sold off into slavery, ends up in Potiphar's house and slavery and so on, and eventually becomes the right-hand man of Pharaoh. Was it a sin for his brothers to throw him into a pit and then lie about his death? Clearly. But after Jacob dies and everybody's worried, oh, oh, dad's dead. Joseph's going to have our head. What does Joseph say? He says, don't worry. You meant this for evil. So he's not denying the fact that they use their will and they have culpability. You meant this for evil. But God meant this. That's volition and culpability for what? Good. God took the evil deeds of human beings and used it for his divine purposes how do we explain that we can't that's one of the reasons i think that's one of the arguments for the divinity of scripture that the bible is divine the bible doesn't try to answer all these mysteries um, it just lays it out and says here it is and so that's 
part of what we're dealing with this morning is who killed Jesus. There, it, well, it's a complex answer that gets answered all throughout the Bible. It involves God. It involves uh, all of these entities that we've talked about. So let's let's move into the crucifixion. We're going to turn first to John 19. We're going to cover a lot of passages this morning. I always kind of kind of debate on how we should go about each given lesson and maybe just stick in one passage or cover all the passages. Um, we're going to do some flying this morning, if that's okay. We're going to cover a lot of passages on the crucifixion. So we'll start with this one gospel representation in uh, John 19, starting in verse 16. So let's pick it up right there at 16. Then he delivered him to be to them to be crucified. So this is Pilate. So they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha. So you've got Golgotha is the kind of like the Hebrew. It's the transliterated into English, and it just basically means skull. Some people think it's because this area had a look of a skull, maybe from a distance or from a certain angle. We don't know. Jesus is carrying his cross. Um, almost certainly we do have some evidence for this. Is Jesus carrying like the whole two pieces of wood or do you think he's just carrying, carrying the uh, horizontal bar? What do you guys think from your study? Yeah, it's probably the horizontal bar. In fact, your curriculum says it was called the patabolum. That's some Latin word that I think just means horizontal bar or something. And and so Jesus is carrying that on the way to the cross. We know from other passages that he wasn't able to get all the way there. Simon of Cyrene <clears throat> helps him get the rest of the way as he carries this uh, to his death. And verse 18, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now, Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth the king of the Jews um, then many of the Jews read this title for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city and it was written in Hebrew Greek and Latin therefore the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate do not write king of the Jews but say he said I am king of the Jews and Pilate answered what I have written I have written so we have Jesus now on the cross. He's between two thieves. Remember in the book of John, John doesn't always try to reiterate what all the other gospels have already said. He's normally trying to give us fresh information. Um, so we do have this title of Christ in different languages. That There's debate about whether it's attached to the cross or maybe hung over his neck, his neck on a, a rope or a chain. Um, notice that there's very little information given about crucifixion in John's description here. Um, some people would say that's because everybody just knew what crucifixion was. That's possible. But remember, John is writing his gospel several decades after the event. And the gospels are being dispersed well beyond Jerusalem and and crucifixion didn't have didn't necessarily happen in every single city in the Roman Empire. So I don't know that everybody would have necessarily viewed a crucifixion. Um, so it could be that there there was some familiarity with it. Uh, my leaning is is that uh, is the Bible tells us enough to know that Jesus died and that crucifixion is a brutal death. To have nails put through your your hands and your feet is brutal, right? And so people could imagine that. But it seems like, in my opinion, the Bible avoids overly gruesome descriptions and overly over bloodifying, so to speak, um, the event. Because the, the true nature of the crucifixion is what transpires between the father and the son, as we're going to see in the epistles. It is a terrible death. Jesus went and did it willingly. Um, but what develops in the medieval period and in the Roman Catholic Church, this obsession with the blood 
and the gore of uh, of the crucifixion. You just don't find that anywhere in the Bible. Um, you do find it in some of the so-called visions of the mid, some of these mystic nuns. Mel Gibson's movie, by the way, The Passion, which I like a lot of that movie, by the way. Um, but his Mel Gibson's vision really comes from a medieval nun, Teresa of Avila, and where she really goes into details of the blood and the guts and the connection between Jesus and his mother, almost this Elliot E.T. connection. And you'll notice that in the movie is there's this Elliot E.T. connection between Jesus and Mary all throughout the film because Mary is the co-redemptress, right? And so Mel Gibson's movie really goes into the blood and guts of it um, because that's very part and parcel of Roman Catholicism is, is there's this emphasis on look how terribly we've treated Christ. And uh, in Roman Catholicism, honestly, the theology is that Jesus is pretty ticked at the church for crucifying him and Mary placates the wrath of Jesus. And so that's why we pray, Hail Mary, full of grace, because she's the one that's dispensing grace and help and placating the wrath of Christ. Somehow I think that's not what the gospel says. Um, so anyway, all that to say that the Bible doesn't put a whole lot of emphasis in the gore of it. I do think there's some, personally, I think there are some benefits to some of the research that's been done medically about what crucifixion would entail and so on and so forth. I think that can be helpful. I don't know how helpful it is just to go into the gore. I think if we stick with the scriptures, the emphasis seems to be put upon the wrath-bearing element of it more than anything else, the propitiation. Um, so let's continue there. Um, verse 23. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart. And also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it. Um, whose it shall be, but the scripture that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Um, that says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. Um, I don't know that we'll have time this morning to get into all those prophecy passages that was in your curriculum that compares Old Testament to New Testament. But this is one that John points out for us, that this is a direct fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Verse 25 now there stood by the cross of Jesus, his mother, and his uh, mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. Um, then Jesus, therefore, when he saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his own home. So who is this mysterious disciple whom Jesus loved? I think most of you guys know. John, yeah. So when you guys compare the rest of the book of John, this is very common, especially in ancient literature, for the author to not refer directly to themselves. They would refer to themselves by another title or whatever. And throughout this book, it's the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so this actually becomes... It, um, one of his titles in church history is eventually people begin to refer to John as the beloved disciple. It's interesting to note that remember at the, in the garden of Gethsemane, what happens to all the disciples when Judas and the soldiers show up, they scatter, right? But then we do see John kind of following along and observing some of the goings on in the trial and so on. And Peter's falling a little bit further behind but by the time we actually get to the crucifixion, John, as far as we know, is the only disciple that's actually there at the crucifixion. And so there, being there at the crucifixion with um, Mary, Jesus basically commends his mother to the disciple whom Jesus loved. And, um, and then John's able to report this to us. So part of what that tells us is... is um, 
you know, the other Gospels, they report to us the crucifixion, obviously by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and, and they were guided to report those facts properly and accurately. But John was there watching it himself. We know that he was there at the crucifixion. And so, I don't know, to me, that just kind of makes the hair rise up on the back of my neck that when we're reading John's account, it's all scripture, right? It's all inspired. But I, I like the idea of just reading John's account, who is an eyewitness of the crucifixion, um, and then reporting us uh, these details. By the way, I'll, I may talk about this some other time. I've been working on some notes on the disciple whom Jesus loved, and um, which my buddy at Calvary Chapel Anaheim, I think, stole from me behind my back. And But... The disciple whom Jesus loved, it, it kind of tells us a couple things. One is, as a, as a man, Jesus probably had best friends, like he had closer friends, right? We know that from the 12. He definitely had the 12, he had the three, and then there's this one that's called the disciple whom Jesus loved. That doesn't mean he didn't love the other ones. But as a man, Jesus can only get to know certain people at certain depths, right? He didn't know a thousand people at the same level of knowledge, we're talking about in his humanity. So here's um, probably the one man on earth that he had the closest relationship with uh, and actually turns the care of his mother over to his best friend. And I don't know about you, but to me that that just exalts the humanity of Christ in my mind when I think about the fact that Jesus had a best friend, uh, that he had close friends. Uh, we shouldn't be afraid to think of Christ in that way if we realize that he really is a man. He really is God, but he also really is a man. And so he had best friends. The other thing that I think about when I think about the disciple whom Jesus loved or this beloved disciple is I just wonder when did John take on this title upon himself? Because um, he's writing the book of John pretty late. Right. And so he's calling himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so we don't know when this title kind of accrued to him. We do know that John is one of the sons of thunder. He was wanting to call thunder or lightning down to kill people at one point. He was one of the disciples that was vying to be able to sit at the right or the left hand. Um, he was mad about Samaritans going out and doing work without permission of Christ. And so there's this fiery nature of him early in the ministry, but he does eventually become the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so there seems to be something about um, Christ and, and John's relationship with him. I, I'm guessing that softened him up and really began to where he owned this title. Um, but beyond that, the Bible indicates that all of us in one sense are called beloved. You know, Ephesians 5, 1 says, you know, exhorts us to follow the example of God as dearly loved children. And there are several places in the New Testament where all of us who are in Christ are called beloved or dearly loved. And so we are beloved um, in Christ by the father. So think about this thought. Um, there's a sense in which while John was um, Jesus's best friend as a man on earth, as God, Jesus can be best friends with all of us because he's infinite, right? And so as God, when Jesus is looking at me, he doesn't have to divide his attention from me between millions of other Christians. It's not like he's like, hold on, I've got to go answer Katie's praying right now or Joe's praying. I can't deal with you right now, Mike. You're just going to have to put your whining aside because I'm busy. No, as God, Jesus can be and, and I believe is my best friend, so to speak. Um, and so when Jesus was baptized, the father says to the son, uh, this is my what? beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And then the new Testament indicates that we are in the son and we are, and so we were inside of the beloved. And so God is well pleased with us. Some older theologians call this the complacency of God's love, which sounds weird. 
Has anybody ever heard that term theologically, the complacency of God's love? I've been studying the Bible for like 30 years. I only came across this maybe three or four months ago. Um, Spurgeon talks about it, a lot of the older theologians. The idea is this, is in a theological sense, complacency means the father cannot be any more pleased with the son than he already is. His love for the son cannot grow because he is so completely in love with the son and the son is so pleasing to the father that the father is complacent in his love for the son. Does that make sense? It can't grow. So when the father looks at the son, he's like, my love, I am completely complacent in my love for you because it cannot grow. We always, and we normally think of the word complacency as negative, which it is in our modern vernacular. But theologically, it's positive when you're talking about the love of the father to the son. So what older theologians do with that, and I love this concept, Spurgeon has a whole sermon on it, is if we're in the son, then the father has a complacent love for us. That his love cannot possibly get any grander because we're within the beloved one. And we are beloved because he is beloved. Does that make sense? And so when the when you think of your relationship with the father and this all comes because of the cross, right? Um, the father has complacent love for you and for me. It can't get any better um, as as we think about ourselves within Christ. And so that all I, I, I think those kind of some of the thoughts that come to mind when I see John here referring to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, no doubt. He was his human best friend. But just as one of the guys in the body of Christ, he's also just beloved by Christ because he's in the body of Christ, just like you and I are. Yeah, Cynthia. Yeah, that could be. Yeah, it could be that he really began to embrace the love of Christ for himself. Um, you definitely see there's a certain relationship that's going on even around the Last Supper where he's seated in the place of honor and he's kind of leaning in on Christ. Even Peter's kind of like, hey, talk to him, ask him that question. Um, so from a human standpoint, there was definitely something very special going on there, which I don't know. That to me is a cool thought to think of Christ having those type of relationships but I don't want to stop there. I want to go now to the divinity of Christ, apply that to myself. Is It's not like, oh, that's great that John feels so loved. You know, What about me? No, if we understand that we're in Christ and our wrath, the wrath of God has truly been propitiated, it has been set all on Christ in the crucifixion, we also enjoy that beloved relationship. And so now and also in heaven, we will be able to commune with the divinity of Christ and, 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 and I think experience that sense of complacency and, and divine belovedness. Now, this is a sideline issue, but when it comes to Christ's humanity in the eternal state, you will have to make an appointment, right? Because Jesus really is a man, which means in the eternal state, he will be in one location at one time. And so he will not be, he, we don't believe in the ubiquity of Christ's humanity like the Roman Catholics do. We believe that Christ is truly a man in a body in one place at one time. And so we will each have our appointments to meet with Christ as man. I don't know how that strikes you, but to me, that's exciting. Um, I might have to wait for several thousand years. I don't know. But while I'm communicating with Christ through the Spirit, I'll be waiting for my appointment to meet with him as a man. We can talk more about that later if you want. Um, let's, let's pick it up at verse 28. Um, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. So it even seems that even in Christ's death that he's making choices for himself. Um, 
Therefore, <clears throat> because it was the preparation day that the body should not be remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate, and that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and the others uh, who, who were crucified with him. And when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately blood and water came out. And he who has testified and his testimony is true, he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture might be fulfilled, not one of his bones were broken. And again, another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they have pierced. So John is clearly the one that's giving this testimony. He saw it. He was an eyewitness. He's also pointing out the fulfillment of prophecy from the Old Testament. And, um, and, we, and we see the Jews and Pontius Pilate in cahoots in this whole thing. So even in this passage, we see human, human blame being leveled and then scripture being fulfilled. So this has been planned beforehand by God. It's fulfilling scripture. And yet you have human beings who are conniving to make this all happen. So this is uh, just an impressive section of scripture that lays out um, the details of the cross. Let's talk about some of the theological aspects of the cross. Turn back to John 3. You know, everybody's familiar with John 3, 16. Um, we don't always hear about John 3, 36. And he who believes in the Son has everlasting life. He who does not believe the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. So there's this condition of mankind, particularly human beings who do not believe that the wrath of God continues to abide on him. He who believes has everlasting life. The implication seems to be if you believe, you no longer have the wrath abiding on you, but now you have eternal life. But if you don't believe, you're not in this condition called eternal life. You still have the, the wrath of God abiding or hanging over you, which really seems to get at the crux of the matter of what salvation is and why Jesus died on the cross. There's this thing called wrath that is abiding or hanging over the unbeliever. And somehow belief in Jesus moves us out of that wrath position into an eternal life position. So with that in mind, turn back to Isaiah 53. This, these are the aspects. These are some of the aspects of Christ's death on the cross that I think uh, maybe not so much in our circles or at Cornerstone, but in broader evangelicalism i don't know that you always see it emphasized with the proper balance but here in isaiah you have isaiah prophesying about this servant which seems to be different from himself because he's speaking of this servant in the third person who has believed our report to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root of dry ground. He has no form of comeliness. And when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Seems to be the idea is he doesn't show up with the pomp and circumstance of a, somebody that you would expect as a king. Um, I don't know if you ever get to see if you've ever been able to see the president drive by or, or walk by or somebody really famous. Um, I'm almost certain that I saw Albert Pujols at Knott's Berry Farm the other day, and I just didn't have the guts to go up and talk to him. But it's like I was just looking at his clothes, and it's like this dude has some change, right? Those shoes have to be $500 shoes. He's got all these rings on. This guy... And just the way he's manicured, I'm like, if he's not Albert Pujols, he's somebody who's got a lot of money, right? Who looks like Albert Pujols. And, um, and so he's got this 
comeliness. He he's carrying himself like somebody who is a superstar. Jesus shows up on the scenes. Nobody would have been like, oh hey, there's that there's that Messiah guy. Check him out, boy. Look at his clothing. Look how look how manicured he is, and look at his fingernails. And boy, that, this guy's something else. No, you wouldn't even. You'd just walk right by this guy. Would have no idea that he's the Son of God come to reign. Uh, verse th- uh, three: He is despised and rejected by men. So not only is he some famous guy, but he's despised. He's rejected. He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised. We did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by whom? By God and afflicted. As people who have been in the church for a while, we read verses like that. We just kind of run by him like, yeah, of course. Yeah, he's smitten by God and afflicted. But this is really odd. Why is God interested in smiting someone and afflicting them? Normally, when you're reading your Old Testament and you see God smiting and afflicting people, it's people like Nadab and Abihu, right? It's like a Beth Peor when uh, God brings his judgment. There's all these different judgments in the Old Testament. It's Pharaoh hardens his heart, and God is smiting and afflicting the firstborn. But verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. By his stripes we are healed. This is very odd. Somebody is being afflicted and smitten as you expect in the blessings and cursings of the Old Testament, but they're not being stricken for their own wrongdoing. They're being stricken for our wrongdoing. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. The sheep imagery is all over the Old Testament, gets picked up in the New Testament. We're the ones that have turned away, but our iniquity has been laid on whoever the servant is. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The general tenor of Christ's arrest and trial was one where he could have he could have protested, he could have theoretically um, asked for representation, but he just went right along with the proceedings. Uh, he was taken from prison, from judgment, And who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich at his death. Because he had no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. So whoever this person is, there's no violence. There's no deceit. This is a sinful person who's dying for other people. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief when you make his soul an offering for sin. He shall see his set, his seed, and he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Again, this is very confusing if we don't automatically have Christ in mind. You have Yahweh bruising him and being pleased to bruise him and to make his soul an offering for sin. The Jews would have been very familiar with the obviously the sacrificial system and bringing a lamb to die, but now you've got the servant dying, and it's and then it's the pleasure of the Lord that's causing him to prosper after his death. How can somebody die for our sins as Israel and then he prospers later? That's just strange. Verse eleven: He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, and he shall bear their iniquities. So Yahweh is looking and being satisfied with the sacrifice, and he, uh, this person is bearing iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul unto death, he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. It's, you, look, you read chapter 53 of Isaiah that was written hundreds of years before Christ. This, this chapter could have been written in the New Testament. It's kind of befuddling that it's not in the New Testament. Um, it gives so much description of what's transpiring between 
apparently the father and the son, the father being satisfied by the death of the son for other people. This is what we call propitiation, that there really is something called sin. There really is a just God who takes out his wrath and punishment on sin. All you have to do is just do one pass through the Old Testament, just a few passages, right? And you're going to see God is just wiping people out, seems like left and right. Of course, you got to remember as you're reading through your Old Testament, you're doing kind of a speed speed run through Old Testament history, right? These things are happening more slowly than they appear, right? Because you're, we're getting the cliff notes. But clearly God is, when people are violating his law, he's bringing wrath down if they're not following the right prescription. We just watched the Prince of Egypt again, uh, the the cartoon video of, of Moses. And it's just spooky when God sends his spirit down and you have all these homes that have the blood above their doorpost and the spirit comes and leaves that door alone. And it goes into some Egyptian's house and just snuffs out the life of a firstborn. And, uh, you know, we're all watching this and everybody's like, Ooh, this is, this is scary. And it really, it's meant to be a scary thing that, that if you don't have the blood that's pointing us to Christ, then wrath comes. But if you do have the blood, then you escape wrath. This sounds very archaic. If you don't, if, if you know, we've grown up with this, but if you don't hear it with Christian ears, you can, I've talked to people where there, it sounds like the Aztecs, right? Bringing up a, a human sacrifice to appease the sun God or, throwing in a virgin into the volcano to appease the volcano God. Where do all these cultures get this idea that you have to kind of offer up some sacrifice um, to appease the gods? I think it ultimately goes back to the true God and then it gets warped by demons. In the, in the sense of our true God is we have God who sets up the sacrificial system we know is pointing us forward to Christ. We have all these analogies, not just analogies, but history of Isaac and Abraham and so on and so forth. And so it seems like the, the true nature of the cross does involve something to do with wrath and wrath being born. Okay, last 10 minutes or so, let's look over at Romans 5. We'll see if we can do a more quick flyby of some of these other passages that give us, that kind of flesh out the theology of the cross. It doesn't seem like Jesus is just dying on the cross, kind of like a U.S. soldier laying his life out on the field of battle for freedom. It, you don't get the impression that there's some sort of ransom being handed over to the devil. The devil is exacting some payment. This seems to be something that's transpiring between within the councils of the Trinity. So in Romans 5, verse 6 and following, what we have is for when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died, what? For the ungodly. So Christ died for ungodly people. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You know, Paul's writing this as one who was alive when Christ died. Um, but he's writing this for the whole church. And so all of us can own this verse that Christ had died for me um, in history, knowing that I was a sinner, not a righteous person. Much more than verse nine, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from what? Wrath through him. Again, I have to constantly remind myself that I've been hearing these verses since I was young, but this sounds weird to somebody who didn't grow up in the church. Blood? Jesus shed blood and his blood saves me from what? From wrath? That just sounds strange. Verse 10, for... If when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We've been brought back together with him. 
Then he goes on through this whole section about talking about the sin of the one man, Adam, and then the obedience of the one man, Jesus, particularly him being willing to go and die on the cross, which counteracts the sin of the one man, Adam. But look down to verse 21. No, actually, no, we're going to go to 2 Corinthians. I'm sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 5. Um, so would you guys all agree that there's evidence in the Bible for wrath being a big part of the cross? Okay, so there's wrath bearing going on. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 5.12 and following. 2 Corinthians 5.12. For we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on, our, on your behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. Um, look at verse 14. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge this. That if one died for all, then all died. So uh, Christ's love is going to compel us or um, propel us as we think about this fact that he died for all of us. Therefore, we all died to our old life, as it were. Verse 15, and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So there's this total reconstruction of what your life is about now because he died for us. We now live for him. Our lives are not for ourselves anymore. Therefore, him. For 16, therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet we know him thus no longer. He's in heaven. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. Um, let's look down at verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's a crazy verse. And we have to talk a little bit about pronouns and um, what the pronouns are referring to. He made him who knew sin. Who made whom? The father made Jesus, who knew no sin, Jesus knew no sin, to be sin or to act in the place of sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Who's the last him? In Christ. So this is just an amazing verse. The father takes the sinless one and treats him according to our sins. He gets the wrath. He gets the punishment. With the result that we become the righteous ones, not in and of ourselves, but in Christ. And so now, because we're righteous in Christ, we are accepted in the beloved. God has complacent love for his children because we are totally accepted in Christ. And, in, 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 and the wrath has been born uh, by the Lord Jesus Christ for us. We won't have time to get to the... Uh, uh, the prophetic death stuff. But let me do circle back around just a couple other verses we won't have you turn to. But Colossians 1, verse 19 and following, For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and that by him to reconcile all things to himself, by what things whether on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. So there's this peace that's been accomplished because Christ has bled his blood. Same same book, chapter 2, verse 13. And you, being dead in trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses, having wiped away the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. If you just stop right there, God, it sounds like God just kind of took our sins and swept them under the carpet and said, I'm a nice guy. You guys aren't that bad anyway. Let's just enjoy and have each other and have a good time. No, it says, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. There's always a judicial basis for forgiveness. Always, always, always. Nobody gets forgiveness. Nobody gets sins passed over just because they're nice people. And because God just says, hey, I'm just a nice guy. No, God is, he is a nice guy. He's a just judge. And so all sin is atoned for in some way. 
that's why I think when you look at the Old Testament, particularly sometimes it's befuddling how it is that some people sin and they get wrath. Other people sin and their sins seem to be just as bad and they get grace. And you're kind of like, why is God doing that? Is he playing favorites or what? In one sense, yeah, he is. But it's like the wrath is absorbed on those that are his own. It is not absorbed on those who are not his own. Let me give you one example. We're running out of time. We've got about four minutes. Let's talk about Nadab and Abihu, right? <clears throat> Everybody knew you're not supposed to bring a strange fire into the house of the Lord. There's very prescribed ways that you come in and worship the Lord. Nadab and Abihu, for some reason, decide, and there's implications there that they may have been drunk, that we're just going to bring in this strange fire, which probably means they had picked up something from Baal worship or their old Molech, these old-time religions, and they decided to bring it in to kind of improve the worship experience. Try to let's let's improve our worship experience here. God looks down at Nadab and Abihu. He sees two people. He can see their hearts better than anybody else that don't know him, don't love him, don't care about the sacrifices. Boom, they're dead. Johnny on the spot. God says through Moses to Aaron, don't even weep for them. Drag them out. You're like, whoa. God is a just God. He can take anybody out at any time. Fast forward. Moses goes up to Mount Horeb or Sinai. He's up there with God. Joshua, we find out later, is, is with them in some way. All of a sudden, all the people get restless. They say, hey, we don't know where this guy named Moses is. Make us some gods. What does Aaron do? He says, oh, okay. And they take off their earrings. He molds a golden calf. They're, they're partying, they're worshiping. Aaron is the one doing this. He's the dad of Nadab and Abihu. I don't know about you, but when Moses is coming down that mountain, I'm waiting for Aaron to get zapped. I'm just waiting for it. He deserved it, right? Moses comes down, throws the law on the ground. He crushes those cows to powder, makes everybody drink. What happens to Aaron? He doesn't get wrath. Why doesn't he get wrath? That's just odd. Well, he is the high priest who's been dressed in the symbols of Christ's righteousness. He has been involved in the sacrificial system. God must have looked down upon Aaron. And even though he committed a terrible sin, saw somebody who had believed and had come inside of the righteousness that would be that's pointing towards the righteousness of Christ. So Aaron gets his sins passed over. Nadab and Abihu get the wrath on their own heads. When we look at situations like that in the Old Testament, what we should say to ourselves is we all deserve Nadab and Abihu treatment. Outside of Christ, every one of us would be just obliterated, just like Nadab and Abihu and somebody else would drag our bodies out and pick up those sensors and use them for holy purposes, right? We're going to leave something behind that can get used for God's glory, but it ain't going to be us. But if we're within the righteousness of Christ, like the high priest, if we're actually, we've participated in that sacrificial system, if we've come into contact in believing in the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, guess what? There are times where Christians are going to do some dumb things. It's, I'll raise, I'll be the first to raise my hand. I'm one of them. I've done some things in my life that definitely deserve Nadab and Abihu treatment. Not just before I was a Christian, since I've been a Christian, since I've been a pastor, I've done things that God would have had every right to come down and treat me like Nadab and Abihu. But for some reason, I get treated like Aaron. Why is that? Because of me, right? It's because Jesus Christ died on the cross for this ungodly sinner. When we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so that should give us great hope. And I hope that on the one hand, it should not make us boast over the Nadab and Abihu treatment that we do see people getting because we all deserve it. On the other hand, we look and see the way we get treated who are in Christ. We're beloved. We're accepted. God has a complacent love for us if we're in Christ. And so we're just like, 
man, why are you so good to me, Lord? And then God's further purpose for us is as we bask in that grace is he wants to actually in our actual daily lives, propel us towards righteousness to where we're becoming more and more in real life, like the savior that we follow, right? We know that we're never going to completely get there, but as we're continuing to gaze upon Christ, we're going to be changing from glory to glory by his grace. So that's in a nutshell, I think, we can't completely exhaust everything that the cross means, but in a 45 minute lesson, I think we could say at this point that no, Jesus's death wasn't just for moral influence. It wasn't to pay a ransom to Satan. It wasn't just so it wasn't just a cosmic accident. It was pre-planned by God in eternity past that Jesus Christ would come to die on the, on the cross to bear the wrath of many, those that would believe in him. And if we place our faith in Jesus Christ, then instead of getting wrath and the acid rain that would, will come, we get God's grace. But if we, if we excuse ourselves from Christ, then the wrath of God abides on us. And so therefore, as Christians, it's incumbent upon us to go out and preach this gospel. Not just a gospel that says, hey, if you, you, know, if you come to church, you're going to get good, good things or... You can have all your problems taken care of. No, the ultimately salvation is a rescue from the wrath to come. That's ultimately what it is. And we don't want to promise people that their life's going to get better because it might get worse. And we see all, I'll end on this. We see evidence of this all over the New Testament, Old Testament, also in church history. One of the earliest evidences outside of the Bible of, of Christ's death on the cross uh, that we have is graffiti of somebody making fun of a Christian. Uh, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of this particular, it's, it's graffiti that was found actually in the 1800s. It's called Ax Alexa Menas uh, Graffito. And you can't really see the image that well right there, but when you put a little piece of paper and I forget how they do it, they, they put crayon or something on it, some kind of, this is what it turns out to be. And uh, so Alexa Minos worships his God. So it's showing Jesus on the cross with a donkey head. Jesus is an ass dying on the cross. And this stupid, foolish guy is worshiping an ass on a cross. This is in the 200s. So, so this is one of the earliest uh, representations that we have outside of the Bible of Christ dying on the cross. And it comes from people making fun of Christians. And this has been going on for 2000 years is if you worship a Jesus who dies on the cross for sinners. And if you say I'm a sinner and I receive Christ's blood, people are going to think that you're just dumb. You're just worshiping a donkey. Um, so, um, so I think one of the things that we can, we can take away from this is, is, don't don't worry so much about the people that are telling you you're foolish and you're worshiping a donkey. Uh, let's let's worry about the guy who can throw people into hell and and take out Nadab and Abihu, but who is so willing to have mercy upon thousands of generations. One of the things that's just sticking out to me in my last pass through the Bible is how merciful God really is. How long, how, how many times he would wait for hundreds of years for a people to repent. Even in Canaan, these were wicked, wicked, wicked people. He waits for 400 years before he finally sends in uh, the troops to, to wipe them out. Um, Noah's building that ark for what? hundred years or so before God finally brings the wrath down. Um, Abraham's praying for his nephew at Sodom and Gomorrah and the angels go down there and not only they're so kind, they actually take him by the hand and put him and his family outside of the city before wrath comes. And then he's like, Oh, I can't go to the mountains. Can I just go to this little city? Okay. Get there, but hurry. I mean, how gracious is God that he's just so willing to delay wrath, to put wrath on Christ. If we just believe and humble ourselves a little bit, he's just stepping out to us. This is a very, very gracious God that we serve. And, uh, and through Christ, we can be very thankful this morning. Let's, let's pray. I'll be up here for questions if you have any. Next week, we'll move on to chapter 5. 
Lord, we thank you so much for just the wonder of the cross and uh, its depth uh, just beyond our full comprehension. Thank you that we've been able just to scratch a little bit of the surface this morning. We pray that you would help us to grow in our appreciation. Uh, may just the death of Christ and and the atonement never grow old to us as we sing of it, as we pray, as we read your word. Help us to come to deeper and fresher understandings and appreciation that we get the treatment of Aaron, not the treatment of Nadab and Abihu because of Christ's death on the cross. Um, We pray, Father, that that would also ignite our evangelism, that as we look out and we see a world of people who have been taken captive by the devil to do his will, people whose wrath, um, they are underneath your wrath and they need to be rescued. May we go out in boldness, knowing that you have many people in this city uh, that you are drawing to yourself. It's not our responsibility to change hearts or force anybody, but as we go out and just dis- uh, dispense the gospel and cast the seed, as Kumi said a few weeks ago, we can just uh, trust that you're going to bring your own to yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.